Lesson 6 for July 29 through to August 4, The Priority of the Promise. Sabbath afternoon, July 29. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're deep into the book of Galatians and we're discovering things there that perhaps we haven't seen before or they're being more clarified for us. And we appreciate what Paul writes about your love and your grace and your acceptance of us. And as we open your word this week, we pray that your word will become part of us, that it'll become richer for us, and it'll not just be a promise, but it'll be our inheritance. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Galatians chapter 3 and verse 18. And this week it's from the English Standard Version. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Let's read that again, Galatians 3 verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Someone once asked a politician, Have you kept all the promises that you made during the campaign? He responded, Yes. Well, at least all of the promises that I intended to keep. Who hasn't at one time or another been at one end or the other of a broken promise? Who hasn't been the one to break a promise or the one to have a promise made to him or her broken? Sometimes people make a promise, fully intending to keep it, but later don't. Others make a promise knowing as the sounds leave their mouths or the letters their fingers, it's all a lie. Fortunately for us, God's promises are of an entirely different order. God's word is sure and unchanging. As he says in Isaiah 46 verse 11, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. In this week's lesson, Paul directs our attention to the relationship between God's promise to Abraham and the law given to Israel 430 years later. How should the relationship between the two be understood? And what implications does that have for the preaching of the gospel? Sunday, July 30, Law and Grace Even if his opponents conceded that Abraham's life was characterised primarily by faith, Paul knew that they still would have questions about why God gave the law to Israel about four centuries after Abraham. Did not the giving of the law nullify any previous arrangement? Question what is the point of Paul's analogy between a person's final will and testament and God's covenant with Abraham? Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through to 18. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, 
but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For, if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. A covenant and a will are generally different. A covenant is typically a mutual agreement between two or more people, often called a contract or treaty. In contrast, a will is the declaration of a single person. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, never translates God's covenant with Abraham with the Greek word used for mutual agreements or contracts, syntheki. Instead, it uses the word for a testament or a will, diatheki. Why? Probably because the translators recognised that God's covenant with Abraham was not a treaty between two individuals where mutually binding promises are made. On the contrary, God's covenant was based on nothing other than his own will. No string of ifs, ands or buts was attached. Abraham was simply to take God at his word. Paul picks up on this double meaning of will and covenant in order to highlight specific features of God's covenant with Abraham. As with a human will, God's promise concerns a specific beneficiary, Abraham and his offspring, as we read in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through to 5. Now the Lord has said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham Abram, yes, he was still called Abram then, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. And as we read in Galatians 3.16 a moment ago, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And it also involves an inheritance, as we read in Genesis chapter 13, verse 15. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And that's repeated in Genesis 17, verse 8. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And Romans 4.13 For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Most important to Paul is the unchanging nature of God's promise. In the same way that a person's will cannot be changed once it has been put into force, so the giving of the law through Moses cannot simply nullify God's previous covenant with Abraham. God's covenant 
is a promise, as we read before in Galatians 3.16. And by no means is God a promise-breaker, as we read in Isaiah 46.11. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, indeed I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it and will also do it. And Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18. But if he bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. And so to finish today, replace the word covenant with promise in the following passages. What is the nature of the covenant in each passage? How does understanding God's covenant as a promise make the meaning of the passage clearer? And... How does it help us understand better what a covenant is? So I'll read the text and I'll actually put promise in instead of covenant. Thus I establish my promise with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the promise which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my promise which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh." The water shall never again become a flood to destroy your flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting promise between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the promise which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And Genesis chapter 15 verse 18. I'll try and get it all right this time. On the same day the Lord made a promise with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And Genesis 17, verses 1 through to 21. When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my promise between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my promise is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham." For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my promise between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations, for an everlasting promise to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my promise and your descendants after you throughout your generations. This is my promise which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the promise between me and you. 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my promise shall be in your flesh for an everlasting promise. And the uncircumcised male child, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my promise. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and Also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she'll be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is one hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my promise with him for an everlasting promise, and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation." But my promise I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And the question is, what does this teach us too about the character of God and how we can trust him? Monday, July 31. Faith and Law. Paul has argued strongly for the supremacy of faith in a person's relationship with God. He has repeatedly stated that neither circumcision nor any other works of law are a prerequisite to salvation, because, as he says in Galatians 2.16, by works of the law no one will be justified. Moreover, It is not the works of the law by faith that is the defining mark of the believer. Galatians 3, 7. We'll have a look at that. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. This repeated negation of the works of the law raises the question, Does the law have absolutely no value then? Did God do away with the law? Question. Because salvation is by faith and not by works of law, does Paul mean to say that faith abolishes the law? What do the following texts tell us? First of all, Romans chapter 3 and verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And Romans 7 verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet 
and Romans 7.12, therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. And Romans 8, verse 3, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And Matthew 5, verses 17 through to 20. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law, till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul's argument in Romans chapter 3 parallels his discussion about faith and law in Galatians. Sensing that his comments might lead some to conclude that he is exalting faith at the expense of the law, Paul asks the rhetorical question, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? The word translated as overthrow in Romans 3 verse 31 in the ESV is katageo, K-A-T-A-R-G-E-O. Paul uses the word frequently, and it can be translated as to nullify in Romans 3.3, to abolish in Ephesians 2.15, to be brought to nothing in Romans 6.6, or even to destroy in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 13. Clearly, if Paul wanted to endorse the idea that the law was somehow done away with at the cross, as some people today claim he taught, this would have been the time. But Paul not only denies that sentiment with an emphatic no, he actually states that his gospel establishes the law. From the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, volume 6, page 510, I read, The plan of justification by faith reveals God's regard for his law in demanding and providing the atoning sacrifice. If justification by faith abolishes the law, then there was no need for the atoning death of Christ to release the sinner from his sins, and thus restore him to peace with God. Moreover, genuine faith implies in itself an unreserved willingness to fulfil the will of God in a life of obedience to his law. Real faith, based on wholehearted love for the Saviour, can lead only to obedience. And so to finish today, think through the implications if Paul did indeed mean that faith nullifies the need to keep the law. Would adultery then be, for instance, no longer sin? What about stealing or even murder? Think about the sorrow, pain and suffering you could spare yourself if you merely obeyed God's law. What suffering have you or others gone through as a result of disobedience to God's law?
Tuesday, August 1. The Purpose of the Law Question. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through to 29, Paul makes multiple references to the law. What is Paul primarily referring to in this section of Galatians? Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law, then, against the promises of God? Certainly not. For... If there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus." And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Some, believing that the word until in verse 19 indicates that this law was only temporary, have thought the passage must refer to the ceremonial law, because the purpose of that law was fulfilled at the cross, and thus came to an end. Though this makes sense by itself, it does not appear to be Paul's point in Galatians. While both the ceremonial and moral law were added at Sinai because of transgressions, we will see by considering the following question that Paul appears to have the moral law primarily in mind. Question. Does Paul say that the law was added? To what was it added? And why? Well, let's look again at Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, which reads, I'm just looking for it on the page. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgression, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. And Romans chapter 5, verse 13 For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. And verse 20 of the same chapter, Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Paul is not saying that the law was added to God's covenant with Abraham as if it were some sort of addendum to a will that altered the original provisions, the law had been in existence long before Sinai. And we'll look at that in tomorrow's lesson. Paul means instead that the law was given to Israel for an entirely different purpose. It was to redirect the people back to God and the grace he offers all who come to him by faith. The law reveals to us our sinful condition and our need of God's grace. 
The law was not intended to be some kind of program for earning salvation. On the contrary, it was given, Paul says in Romans 5.20, to increase the trespass. That is, to show us more clearly the sin in our lives, as we read in Romans 7.13. While the ceremonial laws pointed to the Messiah and emphasised holiness and the need of a saviour, It is the moral law with its thou shalt nots that reveals sin, that shows us that sin is not just a part of our natural condition, but is indeed a violation of God's law, as we read in a number of verses. And we'll start with Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And Romans chapter 5 and verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. And verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And Romans chapter 7 and verse 7 and 8. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law sin was dead. And verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. This is why Paul says, Where there is no law, there is no transgression in Romans 4.15. Writing in the book New Testament Commentary, Exposition on Galatians, page 114, William Hendrickson puts these words, The law acts as a magnifying glass. That device does not actually increase the number of dirty spots that defile a garment, but makes them stand out more clearly, and reveals many more of them than one is able to see with the naked eye. Wednesday, August 2. The Duration of God's Law Question. Does Paul's statement about the law being added at Mount Sinai mean that it did not exist previously? If not, what was the difference before and after Mount Sinai? Well, let's look at some texts. Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And Genesis 18, verse 19. 
For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. In Genesis chapter 26 and verse 5, Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And Genesis 39 Verses 7 to 10. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her, to lie with her, or to be with her. And Exodus chapter 16, verses 22 to 26, And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. God did not need to reveal his law to Abraham with thunder, lightning, and a penalty of death, as we can read in Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 to 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down from Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. 
Then the Lord came down from Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain, and consecrate it. Why then did God give the law to the Israelites in that manner? It was because, during their bondage in Egypt, the Israelites had lost sight of God's greatness and his high moral standards. As a result, they needed to be made aware of the extent of their own sinfulness and the sacredness of God's law. The revelation at Sinai certainly did just that. Question. What does Paul mean when he says the law was added until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made? That's Galatians three sixteen to 19 in the ESV. Let's read it in Galatians three sixteen through to 19. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Many have understood this text to mean that the law given at Mount Sinai was temporary. It entered 430 years after Abraham, and then ended when Christ came. This interpretation, however, conflicts with what Paul says about the law in Romans, as well as other passages in the Bible, such as Matthew five seventeen to 19 Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assured, I say to you, till heaven and earth shall pass, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled." Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The mistake readers often make with this passage is to assume that the word until always implies a limited duration of time. This is not the case. Describing the person who fears the Lord, Psalm 112 verse 8 reads, His heart is steady, he will not be afraid, until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Does this mean that when he triumphs he will become afraid? In Revelation chapter 2 verse 25, Jesus says, Only hold fast what you have until I come. Does Jesus mean that once he comes we no longer need to be faithful? The role of the Lord does not end with the coming of Christ. It will continue to point out sin as long as the law exists. 
What Paul is saying is that the coming of Christ marks a decisive turning point in human history. Christ can do what the law could never do, provide a true remedy for sin, that is, justify sinners and, by His Spirit, fulfill the law in them, as we read in Romans 8, 3-4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so to finish today, have you ever thought to yourself, if only the Lord did this for me, or that, or the other, then I would never again doubt or question him. Think, though, about what happened at Sinai, about how powerful a manifestation of God's power the Israelites saw, and yet still, what did they do? What should this tell you about what true faith is, and how we get it and maintain it? And we're going to finish with Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Thursday, August 3, The Superiority of the Promise Acts chapter 7, verse 38 reads, He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. And in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, we read, What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. In Galatians 1, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 that we've just read, Paul continues his train of thought about the law not nullifying the covenant of grace. This is important, because if the theology of his opponents were correct, the law would do just that. Think then, what our position as sinners would be if we had to rely on our law-keeping as opposed to God's grace to save us. We would, in the end, be without hope. Although the details of Paul's comments in Galatians three nineteen and 20 are difficult, his basic point is clear. The law is subsidiary to the promise because it was mediated through the angels and Moses. The connection of angels to the giving of the law is not mentioned in Exodus, but it is found in several other places in Scripture. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2, And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir, he shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousand of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. And Acts chapter 7 verse 53, Who had received the law by the direction of angels, and have not kept it. And Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2, For 
If the words spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Paul uses the word mediator in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He does this in reference to Christ, but his comments were strongly suggesting he has Deuteronomy 5.5 in mind, in which Moses said, I stood between the law and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. As majestic as the giving of the law was on Sinai, with countless angels in attendance, and as important as Moses was in the presentation of the law at that time, the giving of the law was indirect. In stark contrast, God's promise was made directly to Abraham, and therefore to all believers, for there was no need for a mediator. In the end, however important the law, it is no substitute for the promise of salvation through grace by faith. On the contrary, the law helps us better understand just how wonderful that promise really is. Question. Describe the nature of Abraham's direct encounters with God. What benefit was there to such immediacy with God? And we're going to consider three passages. The first of all is Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through to 12. And it's titled in my version here, God's Covenant with Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, You have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him, for righteousness. And then Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through to 33, titled, The Son of Promise. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth tree of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the ground, and said, My Lord, if I have not found favour in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh your hearts. After that you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. So Abram hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abram ran to the herd, took a tender and young calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, 
I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child, since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked? Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there would be forty found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Indeed now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of twenty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his space. 
And Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through to 18, Abraham's faith confirmed. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So to finish today, think about some of the other encounters people in the Bible had with God. Adam and Eve in Eden in Genesis chapter 3, Jacob and the ladder in his dream in Genesis 28, and Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Maybe you haven't experienced anything as dramatic, but in what ways has God revealed himself to you? Ask yourself, too, whether anything in your personal life might prevent you from having the kind of intimacy and immediacy that Abraham experienced with God. If so, what steps can you take to change?
Friday, August 4. From the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 371. In their bondage, the people had, to a great extent, lost the knowledge of God and of the principles of the Abrahamic covenant. In delivering them from Egypt, God sought to reveal to them His power and His mercy, that they might be led to love and trust Him. He brought them down to the Red Sea, where, pursued by the Egyptians, escape seemed impossible, that they might realise their utter helplessness, their need of divine aid, and then he wrought deliverance for them. Thus they were filled with love and gratitude to God and with confidence in his power to help them. He had bound them to himself as their deliverer from temporal bondage. But there was still greater truth to be impressed upon their minds. Living in the midst of idolatry and corruption, they had no true conception of the holiness of God, of the exceeding sinfulness of their own hearts, their utter inability in themselves to render obedience to God's law, and their need of a Saviour. All this they must be taught. And from the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1094, the law of God, spoken in awful grandeur from Sinai, is the utterance of condemnation to the sinner. It is the province of the law to condemn. But there is in it no power to pardon or to redeem. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. Think about promises, especially broken ones. How have you felt about those who have broken their promise to you? How much difference did it make whether a person intended to keep his or her promise and then either couldn't or changed his or her mind, or if you realise that the person never meant to keep it? What happened to your level of trust after the promise was broken, whatever the reason? What did it mean to you to know that you can trust God's promises? Or perhaps the question should be, how can you learn to trust God's promises in the first place? And question two, in what ways are we in danger of being corrupted by our environment to the point that we lose sight of the important truths God has given us? How can we make ourselves aware of just what those corrupting influences are and how can we counteract them? So to summarise this week's lesson, the giving of the law on Sinai did not invalidate the promise that God made to Abraham, nor did the law alter the promise's provisions. The law was given so that people might be made aware of the true extent of their sinfulness and recognise their need of God's promise to Abraham and his descendants. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled No More Devil Stones, Part 1. Yerikiah and Chinnamai live in a small village in eastern India. Like most of the people in their village, they work as field labourers planting rice. For this backbreaking work, the couple earns about 45 rupees, less than one US dollar a day. That's enough to buy food, but little more. 
Yerakaya is a leader in his village, and life wasn't easy. One night, demons began throwing large stones onto their tile roof. The stones awoke them and broke some tiles on their roof. Night after night, the stones disturbed their sleep. The demon sat in a tree near the couple's home, but Yerakaya didn't dare cut the tree down, or the demons might try something worse. The couple prayed at every temple in the area, offering gifts and sacrifices to the gods to make the devil stop. But nothing worked. They heard that in an instant, village people could work magic to make the devils leave. They made the long trip to the village and paid money for the people to work their magic, but when they returned home, they found more stones lying on the ground around their house. That night, more stones fell on their roof. The disturbances went on for a year. One day, a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, S.S. Rao, visited their village. He found Yerakiah and introduced himself. Then Pastor Rao told Yerakiah that he had come to tell the people in his village about the living God who loves them and wants to save them. Yerakiah sat on his porch listening. The pastor could tell that he had been drinking and wondered how much he understood. Finally, the pastor asked Yerakiah what he could do to help the villagers learn a better way of living. Yerakiah looked the pastor in the face and shouted, If your God is a true God, show me. Make the demons stop throwing stones at my house, and I will believe. Yerakiah pointed to the pile of stones lying nearby and told the pastor his story. The pastor listened and then said, I'll prove that my God is stronger than the devil. I'll hold meetings in this village if the devils throw stones during the meetings, I'll pray that God will make them stop. If the devils stop throwing stones, then you'll know that the God of heaven is the true and living God. Yerakiah agreed. And this story is to be continued next week. This lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.